The next is in chapter 4. This is called the purification offering. Some people call it a sin offering, but that's not accurate because technically the burnt offering was for sin. So it's kind of redundant. Like the burnt offering is a sin offering and the sin offering is a sin offering. You're like, okay, God, you're about redundancy. No, he isn't. This is called the purification offering. Because the primary thing that's now shifting, the first three were about offering up animals for your sins and your thanks to God. This is now what's changing. It's not about you offer this animal if you're this kind of person or that animal if you're this kind of person. Now what's changing is that the blood no longer gets sprinkled on the altar. The blood gets sprinkled on you. And the focus now is is that you are offering up purification. So you are now saying, I recognize them defiled. The burnt offering purified me to a certain extent, but now I want to go the extra mile. Now, in some cases, it is hard to nail down exactly what is unique about the purification and the um, reparation offering, the next two. It is hard. They feel like they're kind of redundant. But the key here is this. The purification offering was required offering. We're never told how often you're supposed to do it, um, but it's mostly a national one. And so this is the one that they're going to offer on the festivals. It was offered less frequently than the burnt offering. And unlike the burnt and grain offerings, the material burnt on the altar is relatively unimportant. God does not focus as much on what gets burnt and what does not get burnt as much as he does on that the blood must cover you. The blood must cover you. This is not specifically about making you right before God. The burnt offering was about making you right. It's about something dying in your place so that you would no longer be under the condemnation of God so that you could stand before him in a right relationship knowing that you're not supposed to die. Okay, you can't have a relationship with somebody who's about ready to kill you. So when you offer the burnt offering, it dies in your place. Now you don't have to die. Now you can actually stand before God and have fellowship with him because now you don't have to die. That was the burnt offering. This is not about that. This is rather about purifying you. This is about then making another offering and now another animal has to die because you're still defiled and you're still perverted by your sin. And so now this animal dies, and it doesn't really matter so much on how it's laid on the altar. What matters is that they take that blood and they sprinkle you with it, and it cleanses you, and it purifies you of your sin. So that just like the altar primarily was responsible for removing your guilt, and the wash basin was for purifying you, thus the burnt offering is removing guilt, and the purification offering is for purifying you. That's why purification is a much better title than sin, because technically this is all about sin. But this one's specifically about purification. So the key here is that this dealt with unintentional sins, which included sins done by mistake or an error or through oversight or ignorance or a lack of consideration or by carelessness. That is, the sacrifice covered the sins that sprang from the weakness of the flesh. The most important feature of this offering is the sprinkling of the blood. So these are the sins. See, we don't realize how many sins we're even committing. 
I mean, some of you kind of realize this. Now, most of us have been alive long enough. This is hard to talk to my high school kids about. But we've all been alive long enough that we now realize, oh my goodness, I was committing a lot of sins back then, and it wasn't until God dealt with this and this and this and this, and I thought, oh, I'm good now. And the Holy Spirit said, yeah, but this. And you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know that was there all along. (laughs) I've been doing that all along, and I didn't even really know that was a sin or a problem, because other things had to be dealt with first. And so there's so many sins that you and I are committing that we don't even know we're committing. Or we're too stupid and self-centered to even know that we hurt somebody. We just walk on by and keep going. And it's not until maybe a year later, they're like, or a month later, a week later, whatever, they're like, you really hurt me there. And you're like, really? I had no idea because I'm stupid. Okay? Or just careless or errors. And this covers all that. It purifies you, those sins that you're, you're just oblivious to or you're careless to. So the burnt offering was more like, I know I sinned. And I really, I feel guilty about this. And I really need to deal with this. This is more about like, I was dumb, I was careless. I didn't realize it until somebody pointed it out. Or like, I got into the temple and I started praying and all of a sudden this thought came to my mind. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's right. And so this took care of that and it purified you. Now, Christ obviously fulfills this because Christ took care of all the sins that you don't even know you take care of, you committed. So what does it look like to fulfill this in your life today? Do you go to God in confession? Even though Christ has died for you and paid the price for you, do you love God enough to confess those things? Because remember, mom and dad or your spouse may always be true to you. They know you're a sinner. They know you're bad. And they've made a covenant vow to stay with you your entire life. But that doesn't mean you're going to have a good relationship with them if you never repent, if you never say, I'm sorry. And so how do we fulfill it? We don't have to do this through the regulations. We don't have to go somewhere and... Your pastor doesn't have to sprinkle blood on you anymore. Christ has already done it all. But does it matter to you to say, thank you, God, for that sacrifice for my sins? And now I want to be purified of that sin. And so let the blood of Christ and let the water of the Holy Spirit actually begin to sanctify me. And I'm going to do everything in my power to confess this, to get in accountability groups, Whatever it needs to be done to make sure that I am purified of the sin that you already paid for. I know my sin is paid for. I no longer, I know I no longer condemned, but I don't want this to be between us. And I don't want to affect my relationship with you, and I don't want to affect our relationship with other people. So what does sprinkling blood on me look like now? It's confession, it's prayer, it's accountability groups, it's it's removing temptations from my life, it's whatever. What is necessary to make sure the Holy Spirit can sanctify me in a way that I'm not hindering that? Does that make sense? And so this one is kind of what we're already being told in the church, and we already know what we have to do, and we're probably already doing this in a lot of areas. But you need to know that this is a fulfillment of a sacrifice that Christ laid out in the First Testament. And so what does it look like for me today to make purifications? What does it look like for me to have blood sprinkled on me? in a confession, accountability kind of a way. Does that make sense? The last offering is in chapter 5. This is the reparation offering. Reparation means making reparations, meaning that I'm going to make things right that I broke. So if I stole from you, I make sure that I get it back to you or pay like I already ate all your cakes, so I'm going to give you enough money to buy that same cake again. Okay, or this is the, I'm not, I'm just, I'm sorry. But 
I was wrong for doing this. I'm going to take the time to listen to your emotional wounding. I'm going to try to feel what you actually felt. And I'm going to do what I need to do to help you get back to a healthy place from my wounding. And it may not always mean a financial thing. Maybe you need counseling because of what I did to you. Should I be responsible for financially paying some of that? Probably. If somebody is in serious counseling because of what they, you did to them, you should probably help pay for that counseling. And so reparation is what can I do physically, financially, time to make things right? I've already offered the animal. That means that I no longer deserve to die. I'm already sprinkled by the blood. That means that I'm purified and cleansed. And I've already maybe offered an animal that says, Hallelujah, thank God, Yahweh, that I'm able to get over this and be right and that kind of stuff. But the fact is you're still wounded and you're still wrong. And you're still broken because of me. And maybe I can give you an animal because I stole an animal from you. But if I've wounded you in a horrible emotional way, an animal is not really going to be like, oh, everything is better now. I don't need counseling anymore. Or it might just add more counseling to you because now you've got to take care of an animal on top of all this. And so the reality is, what does it look like for me to make things right for you? And some things I'll never be able to make right. But what does it look like for me to try? Do I listen to you? Do I pay for your counseling? Do I get invested in your life? Do I dedicate time to you? Does that make sense? And so what it means is, no, I don't have to do the regulation of paying the, t- the temple a certain amount of money or offering an animal. But what it does mean is if, if Christ, I'm the one that sinned. I'm the one that broke the world. I'm the one that ruined the relationship. And yet he's the one that dies on the cross. And he's the one that, he's the one that probably needs counseling for his children rebelling against him. He did everything perfectly. I'm not saying God needs counseling, but just in a metaphorical illustration. I'm the one that rebelled against him. I'm the child that sins against him and ignores him and thinks that he's narrow-minded and I don't appreciate his grandness and his love and that kind of stuff. And any parent that has a kid like that probably needs counseling. And yet he's the one who dies for me and comes in my life and gives me counseling and gives me the Holy Spirit to heal my emotional wounds. And so if he's doing that for me, and I'm the one that wronged him, then what does it mean for me to walk along somebody's side that I've wronged them? And I help them find healing. And I help them get restored. And maybe I can't do that for them anymore because they're dead and gone. Or, But I think that's why a lot of times we're driven that when somebody is close to us has been wrong or whatever, and then they die or whatever, God grows this desire in us for a cause. Think about how many celebrities actually don't really care about people. And then their brother dies of cancer, and they become this huge champion for cancer. Or their, their uncle gets MS, and all of a sudden they become this huge like, campaigner for the cure for MS. Now, a lot of times that's how it works. Like, maybe I can't invest in this person's life and help restore them, but what does it mean to invest in some ministry that helps people like that? I'm not equipped to help you, but can I invest in some kind of charity organization that is equipped to help people like you? Does that make sense? 
And so that's what we need to begin to ask ourselves. What does it look like for me to make reparation? And so there's different reasons. The emphasis here is on restoring someone that was you've taken from or violated them. It means that I'm sorry is not enough. I'm sorry is not enough. And so the first case that this would be offered is if you trespass against God's temple or his tabernacle and you defiled it in some way and you need to make sacrifices to God's temple because you need to purify those articles in the temple and say, I'm wrong. I defiled your tabernacle. I brought sin into your tabernacle. And by bringing sin into your tabernacle, I made it difficult for righteousness to happen. And so I'm going to make a sacrifice to purify the thing that I defiled so that your place can be righteous again so that we can have you in our presence. And we'll talk about this more when we get to the Day of Atonement because that's what's happening. The second case was if a person was ignorant of what he was done wrong and he found out what he had done wrong and then he goes back to that person's life and tries to make it right. And a third case is that when you've taken something from somebody else. And so basically it's, look at this. It's if you've defiled God's place of presence in some kind of way, you make it right. If you've taken something from somebody, you make it right. And if you sin against them, you make it right. Now, you are the temple now, which means every time you sin, you're defiling God's temple, which means you need to do something to purify that temple and make it right again. And that's our confession. Or whatever God tells you is necessary to make your life right. And then there's people you wrong. And so what does it look like for me to say, I need to make sure that this sin doesn't keep happening over and over again in God's temple. Because if the, the longer I stay with this addiction, or the longer I stay with this habitual pattern, I keep defiling God's temple over and over again. And I need, if that requires counseling, if it means confessing my sins and bringing the light, which is humiliating and shameful, I need to do what I can in order to find accountability and help so that I stop defiling this temple of God. That's reparation. And then I need to go to people's lives and I need to make things right with them or invest in somehow in the kingdom of God to help those people who struggle with those things. Because that's reparation. Does that make sense? Now, hopefully, this has become a lot less about legalism, regulations, and rules, and things that don't make sense, and animals dying, and more about, wow, and this kind of covers a lot of the bases of the Christian life. When you think about spiritual disciplines, when you think about the things that you were taught about Christ dying in the sins for your sins, when you think about what it means to be accountable to people, when you talk about the Holy Spirit and sanctification, when you talk about making all these sacrifices cover all that. There's not really anything left out in the sacrificial system when it comes to your Christian life. The difference is that now Christ has fulfilled all the regulations and the details and done them for you. So now that Christ and the Holy Spirit is in you, and all you have to do is seek them out, and they will begin to make all this happen. Because they will tell you what it looks like in your life to do a burnt, a peace, a reparation, a purification offering. They will give you the ability to do it, and they will give you the desire to do it. 
and they'll give you the emotional stamina to get through it if it's hard. And so now you don't have to go through the work of the animal. You don't have to go through the work of offering it up. You don't have to go through Christ has done it all. And all you do is say is, I've done this, and it matches up with that sacrifice. What does it look like for me to implement the heart of that sacrifice in my life in this area right now? And God, give me the ability, give me the strength, and give me the desire to actually do that. And if I don't do it perfectly the first time, then give me the encouragement that I need to do it again. Because eventually, I'll reap the benefits and the blessings of it, and I'll have a good relationship with you and other people. And so Christ has done all the work, and he's now your on your like um, personality scales, He's your idea guy now. You don't have to be, if you're not an idea person, I don't know how, I don't have good ideas for how this stuff is. The Holy Spirit's your idea guy. You pray, he'll give you the ideas. I don't have the ability to do details. I'm not a critical thinking detail kind of a person. He is. He'll help you execute it all out. Now, I'm great with ideas and getting details, but I can never get off the details long enough to actually do it. He'll give you the ability to do it. And where you're weak in your personality, the Holy Spirit, the divine God of the universe, now lives in you. And he'll meet all those discs, Myers-Briggs, whatever one personality test you're doing, he'll help you become what you need to be in order to fulfill this. Because Christ has fulfilled the sacrificial system, and he's now in you. The question is, do you love him enough to say, how, what does this look like in my life? And now that you know, you're held accountable to it. Not because you need to do it to earn your salvation and his love, but you do it because you can't think of any other way to love him than the way that he said, this is what love looks like. Does that make sense? We're not going to go through the details of the next two chapters, but chapter 6, the last half of 6, and then going into 7, are basically what it means for the priest to execute these sacrifices. And so the principal focus in this section is that the eating of the sacrificial meat, who can and who cannot eat that meat. And so this this chapter and a half is mostly about making sure that when the worshiper goes in, the worshiper knows that he's not allowed to eat that, but he can eat that. So he doesn't desecrate the offering. Because why is it so important? Like God's against you having meat and all that kind of stuff. Don't eat too much. Mostly it's because remember a sacrifice without a sacrifice is not a sacrifice. And if you take too much of the sacrifice home with you, then it's not a sacrifice. Because it didn't cost you. Now God does want you to take some of it home on the peace offering and that kind of stuff. Because that's about salt. But remember, that's not you take it home and stock up in your refrigerator and now you've got all this meat. It's about you taking it home and then passing it out to everybody. And you still get to eat it. But it's not all you. And so God is really going to focus on this a lot. And it sounds really kind of like frivolous at first. Like, oh my gosh, God, you're like really anal about how much meat they're allowed to have. It's about making the sacrifice inept because it was no longer a sacrifice for you because you took too much home. Does it make sense? And that's why God gets really on this. The more and more and more that you take from your church or your ministries, the more you're expected to give to them. 
And if you're taking a lot more than what you're giving, then it's not really a sacrifice. And that's a general principle. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty or that you need to put your taking and giving on a scale. That's for the Holy Spirit to work in your life. If you're not offering anything to your church or ministries and work and services and your skills and talents, and yet you're draining them a lot because you've got all these needs, then you need to really think about maybe you're taking too much meat home. And in fact, any psychologist, secular or Christian, will tell you that one of the best things you can do to find healing is actually get involved in people's lives and ministry. And any counselor, anybody, I don't care how secular they are, will tell you the more that you give to a community, the more it actually helps your healing. If you struggle with depression, the first thing they tell you to do is get involved in other people's lives. If you're struggling with anger, the first thing you should do is start praying for them and helping them. It's hard to hate somebody that you're praying for. And so basically what this is all about is don't take too much of the sacrifice home after you offered up the sacrifice because then it's not a sacrifice anymore. And the best thing you can do is be involved in the community. And so he makes it very clear that the fat is not allowed to be eaten. The fat belongs to God because it's the best part. Take that, Weight Watchers. Okay? <laughs> it smells the best. It's the best part. Don't take the fat home. Now, you have to remember, too, that for us, it's just fat. But for them, it's also something that they would turn into for polishing bronze and, and um, um, becoming insulation for things and like a natural refrigerator or a heat thing or whatever. They use it in many ways. You can use fat in a lot of ways. So this isn't just about like... Some people, I've heard commentators say this is because God knows that you shouldn't have too much fat in your diet and he's protecting you from that. That's not really it. The fat is an incredible tool for a lot of things when it comes to survival in the ancient world. And you can use it. See, you eat the meat, it's gone. But the fat can be used in a lot of ways and keep being reused over and over again. And so God is saying, you give me the best part. And you're not allowed to... Um, so he makes it clear there. The, second, the third thing he'd emphasize is the blood must never be eaten. All right, so, and I already talked about this in Genesis chapter 9. Why blood? Blood is not healthy, but remember the most important reason is this. The blood is the life of the animal who is dying for your sins. And now you're taking the blood and you're treating it as common. The life and the blood of the animal is holy, is sacred. You're not allowed to use holy, sacred things that belong to God for ordinary things. Because if you use it for everyday, ordinary things, it's no longer holy anymore. Because holy, remember, is unique, is special, is unlike anything else, and is being used in a way unlike anything else. And if you take the blood of the animal and you just start drinking it for your own benefit, now you've taken the most essential part of God's kingdom, the life of something else on your behalf and you treat it as common. And now it's just another drink or another thing you're eating and it's no longer sacred and it's no longer special. And it's like going in and offering up your grape juice or whatever you're drinking. You're like, that's not special anymore because you use it to drink, you use it to this and this and this and this and it's not meaningful anymore. And so God is not allowing you to drink the blood because it's not healthy. He's not allowing you to drink the blood because you're not allowed to take what is the most sacred thing in the kingdom of God and treating it as common. 
And the same time, too, a lot of blood in the ancient world was used to gain power. And the reason that you have to sacrifice an animal is because you took power and control in your own hands. And then you're having to sacrifice an animal to atone for the fact that you took too much power and control in your own hands, and you turn around and drink the blood to get more power and control. That's a contradiction. And so the three things that God really lays out in these last chapter and a half is you're not allowed to take too much meat home, you're not allowed to keep the fat, and you cannot drink the blood. It doesn't matter if you do everything right. These are the three most sacred things that you're never allowed to violate in any sacrifice. Because this is about making sure that it actually is a sacrifice, that the best really is going to God, and that you're not treating the thing that is necessary to atone for your sins in a common, ordinary way, that then that sacrifice becomes meaningless to you. So understand that God gave the best for you, his son. And he did not take any of it back. He gave it all up for you. And you are not allowed to take the cross and treat it in a common, ordinary, empty kind of a way. It is the most sacred, most amazing, most precious thing in the world. And when you talk about it, and when you go to the cross in repentance, and when you thank him for it, it must be treated in a holy, reverent, awesome way. Does that make sense? All right, that is the sacrificial system of the first seven chapters of Leviticus. Here's your homework. Go home. We are entering into the holiday seasons. With Thanksgiving and Christmas, we're already beginning to enter into a mode of thankfulness. We're already in a time, other than Easter, probably thinking about Christ's death more than any other time. Where this is going to be a time that we're going to be together with family. This is going to be a time that we have more vacation usually than other times, and restful vacation, not just going somewhere. This is a time where we're thinking more about family and more about God. This is perfect timing now to go home now, and your homework is to spend time with God and with your family and ask them, what am I already doing well in fulfilling the sacrificial system through Christ in my life? Always start with what you're already doing well. What is it that I need to seriously work on? That's the first two questions I would ask yourself. What am I doing well? I had a professor once that said, write on a card, your greatest strengths and your greatest sins and weaknesses. Every time you go into the Bible passage, ask what God is saying you should do with your strengths and what God is saying about your sins. And over time, you'll notice that card will change. So the first thing you ask yourself is, what am I doing well? The second thing you ask yourself is, what do I need to work on in the sacrificial system in my life? And then the third thing you need to ask yourself is, how do I do this? How do I do what I'm doing well in maybe more creative ways that I've never thought about, that I can go further with it? And how do I do what I'm not doing well in a way that is creative and beneficial for me and my family? And that's the best way you can pray. If you do that, and God tells you what to do, and you allow him to give you the ability to do it, you will fulfill the sacrificial system without feeling the weight of the law and the legalism and the regulation like the people in the First Testament did. And that's how you apply, that's how you fulfill the law 
in an everyday, normal, modern-day sense, when we're no longer under the law, but the law is written on our hearts.